Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Again, the parables contained in this kingdom parable chapter contain parables that were spoken to the multitudes and also parables that were spoken to Jesus' disciples. In verse 36, Jesus went into the house as he had left the multitudes, and then the disciples asked him about the parable of the wheat and the tares, and he explained it. And then he gave them four more parables just to the disciples that give insight into the way it is with the kingdom of heaven in this age. Last week, we looked at the first of those four parables that he spoke just to his disciples in verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We learned last week that the field is the world. And the man that went and sold everything that he had in order to buy the world, in order to obtain the treasure that is in the world, is none other than Jesus himself. Jesus sold everything that he had, paid for it at the cross, in order that he might buy the world, in order that he might obtain the treasure, his church, those that would believe in him, who were in the world. And that was last week's message, and if you'd like to get a more developed uh, copy of that, then of course they're available on CD and also on our website. This morning we start with verse 45, which gives us a similar parable to the one before. And it says in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So it begins with the word again. If your translation doesn't include the word again in verse 45, it should, because it's in the original text, the Greek word palin. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And the fact that it says again means that Jesus is referring to something that he had said previously. So this is similar to the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. Again, Jesus said, the kingdom is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And he found one pearl of great price, went and sold everything that he had to buy the pearl. It's obvious that the meaning is similar to that of the parable of the hidden treasure in the field. The man would be the Lord Jesus. No question about that. He's the one that purchases. He's the one that sold everything that he had in order to buy it. And the pearl of great price in the parable is, of course, again, his church, the bride of Jesus Christ, those that have believed in him. And so interesting that it's containing the idea of a pearl. Pearl is one of those precious jewels that are coveted all around the world, but it's not a precious metal. A pearl actually created out of the irritation that shows up within an oyster, a piece of sand or some sort of debris. And what the oyster does, it has the capacity to grow a protective layer around that irritant within its shell. And that protective layer, that nacre-like substance that grows around that irritant within the shell, is actually... Uh, formed into a beautiful pearl. It's the same kind of substance of which the shell of the oyster is made. And so it's out of an irritation within the, the shell of the oyster that this substance 
is formed over the irritation so that a smooth surface is on that irritation and therefore the oyster feels nothing uh, from it. And that's the idea here. And the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a beautiful pearl which a merchant found and sold everything that he had in order to purchase it. So the value of this great pearl to the one purchasing it, in other words, the value of Jesus' church to him. He values his church. He loves his church so much that he went and sold all that he had in order to buy his church, to buy the pearl of great price. And this, of course, shows up in the great passage on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul the Apostle talks about the value of the church to Jesus Christ. He says to husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Jesus' love for the church tells us that Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. He loved the church. He loved the church so much, and he loved doing the will of his Father so much that he went and sold all that he had. He left heaven, laid aside the free exercise of his attributes of deity, took upon himself the form of a human being, and became one of us, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary and horrible death on the cross to pay for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and reconciles now true believers to the Father through faith in him. That's the love with which Jesus Christ loves the church. It's an everlasting love, according to Jeremiah chapter 31, and it's a love that had no limits as to what Jesus was willing to pay to purchase her. He bought the church. Now, again, a warning. And we have to remind ourselves of these things because of our own tendencies. But the warning is we can't view, we must not view the love of Jesus Christ for us in humanistic terms. And what I mean by that is we shouldn't view his love for us as something that is expected because of how great we are. Well, of course, he sees in us a pearl of great price. I mean, after all, we are us. We are we. And, and of course, what's not to love? We, we must not view it that way. And I know that there are those who do view it that way, and they do see themselves as so valuable that Jesus went and sold all that he had in order to purchase them, but that is not accurate biblically, and it's, of course, seeing things humanistically. I can guarantee that any person who has such an attitude about themselves in relationship to Jesus' love, thinking that somehow they're worthy of it or somehow Jesus just couldn't help himself, we're so lovely and uh, beautiful creatures that uh, he had to do it. He just couldn't help himself. Those who have that view, once they see him face to face, they'll no longer have that view. Because they'll see him in his holiness, they'll see him in his glory, they'll see him in his wonder, and it will just strike them with all of heaven's power 
It'll strike them and hit them very hard. And they'll realize, boy, I had it all wrong. It wasn't my lovability that motivated Jesus Christ. It's his amazing agape. It's who he is that's responsible for him loving me. It's not who I am. He's the one that gets the credit. He's the one that comes out looking great in this deal. The fact that he loves you and the fact that he loves me is miraculous and it stems from his nature and it's declared in his word. And we have to remember that. We mustn't have a humanistic view of the love of Jesus Christ, but instead have a biblical view of the love of Jesus Christ. Thank God for his mercy, but also thank God that we didn't deserve an ounce of it. That if it were up to justice, we'd have all been crispy critters a long time ago. He bought the church. That text in Ephesians also says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. And so he sanctified the church, which means he set the church apart to himself as those that are special. He considers his church special. He loves his church. He wants to be with his church. He wants his church to be with him. He can't wait for that great reunion when he comes from heaven and receives us unto himself that we might always be with him forever. He loves his church. He sets us apart to him. And then lastly, the text says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. In other words, he beautifies the church. He declares his church to be beautiful, and he actually makes her beautiful. He first of all declares her to be beautiful, even though she may not be in herself. He declares her to be beautiful, and then he makes her beautiful as he works within his church over the time and over the years, conforming us into his own image. Lots of humorous things on the Internet, of course, regarding marriage and Marriage seminars love to start with jokes, loosens everybody up. But uh, questions asked of kids about marriage. How did you decide whom to marry? So little Alan, age 10, he says, well, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports. And she should keep the chips and the dip coming. <laughs> okay, well, that's good, Alan. Good counsel there. And then Kristen, age 10, she was asked that question. She said, well, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all the way before. And then you get to find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) Oh, my. But I like this one. They were asked, how would you make a marriage work? And little Ricky, age 10, said, well, tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a dump truck. (laughs) But, you know, think about little Ricky's answer. What's Jesus doing for you and me? He's constantly telling us we look pretty, even though we look like a bunch of dump trucks. Right? And he not only declares that we look pretty and that we have that view in his eyes, but he also makes us beautiful. That's what he does the pearl of great price, and he makes us look as beautiful as he esteemed us to be when he went and sold all that he had in order that he might buy us. And we're just eternally grateful for that, aren't we? We're going to celebrate communion in a little bit in memory of of that great thing that Jesus has done for us.
eternally grateful for his grace and mercy. The next parable in these kingdom parables spoken to his disciples, the parable of the dragnet, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels and threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Of course, we know that this is very similar to what had previously been taught in the parable of the wheat and the tares. And as Jesus interpreted that parable of the wheat and the tares, he talked about the end of the age and the tares being gathered up and the wicked being brought and taken out of his kingdom and those that are lawless and the wicked and the evil are thrown into the furnace of fire. So this is very similar to that. Uh, The wicked are separated, the angels come forth, they're cast into the furnace of fire, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, what's a dragnet? A dragnet is a fishing net, obviously. But in the context, this is referring to a dragnet that isn't fishing for fish, but is fishing for human beings, is fishing for souls. And God is still doing that. He's still sent out his net, and he's fishing for human beings. He wants people to come to him. He wants people to be saved. And one of our problems today is that people, when you approach them and say, are you saved?, They'll say, what do you mean? From what? And you'll say, well, from sin, of course, and from judgment, so that you can be reconciled to God and have eternal life. And they'll say, I don't need that that to happen. I'm okay just as I am. So people have a difficult time today understanding their need to be saved. And we live in that sort of a culture and in that sort of a postmodern mindset. That's the problem. This is the reason why the Holy Spirit moved upon the heart of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans to share the things that he did in chapters 1 through 3 of that great epistle. If you remember the book of Romans as a whole, Paul wants to get at the subject of what it means to be justified by faith, what it means to be forgiven by the grace of God, what it means to be accepted by God, what it means that Jesus died for us. That's what he really wants to get to. But before he can get there, he's got to point out the need to his hearers that they have to actually receive the gospel. Everybody needs to be justified, therefore they'll be desirous of becoming justified. And so he points out their sin. He points out their sin in chapter 1. He points out the sin of the heathen, the person who suppresses the truth that they know about God and doesn't live up to the amount of light that they have. And then in chapter 2, he shows the sinfulness of the moral man. The man who reads the Sunday morning paper and sees all the bad things that are going on and says, I'm not like that, and I can sure smell a rat when I see one, and anybody who is a transgressor, I know what they're doing wrong. And he thinks that because he's able to evaluate others and judge right and wrong as it appears in other people's lives, that he's exempt from judgment because he himself knows how to evaluate when those have transgressed. 
And Paul points out that, listen, God's judgment is according to truth. It's according to the secrets of men. Nobody gets off scot-free. God will actually evaluate your life, not just your capability to judge others. And then he points out the sinfulness of the religious person, the one who trusts in his religious system to save him and not in Christ. And he shows that the religious person is actually guilty as well because the religious person isn't practicing what they preach. In other words, they're hypocritical. They're telling others that they shouldn't steal, but they're stealing. They're telling others not to murder, but they're murdering. They're doing the very things they're teaching others not to do. They're hypocritical, and so they're condemned because they're not living up to the light of the system that they're trusting in. And all of this is to show that they're sinful, that the human race has all come short of the glory of God, that we need a Savior. Now, why does God do that? Does he do that because he wants to rub our noses in something? Is it because he's trying to bring down uh, our lives and destroy us with this bad news? No, he's doing it because he knows that the only way a person will come to a Savior is when they know they need a Savior. He's like a doctor who when the patient comes into the office and goes through the battery of tests and it's discovered that the patient is riddled with cancer, the doctor then mercifully tells the patient, your body is riddled with cancer. We're going to have to begin aggressive and radical treatments right now if you have any hope of being saved. Now, if the doctor doesn't care about his patients, if the doctor is unethical, if the doctor wants to lose his license to practice, if he wants to go against the Hippocratic Oath, if that's what he wants, then he won't say anything to his patient, and he won't tell his patient that he or she has cancer. And that patient will walk out of that doctor's office thinking that he's a fully healthy, clean bill of health, no problems. God's not willing to do that with us. He'll tell us that we're sinful. He'll tell us that we need a Savior. So this dragnet goes out and it scoops up from all kinds of different people, but hopefully there will be many in that dragnet that realize their need for a Savior and they'll trust Christ. They'll trust Jesus. You know, a lot of people have questions about their souls. We need to pray that the Lord will give us opportunities to share with those that have questions about the eternity of their souls. Well, fishing as it relates to souls is found in the Gospels. Jesus called his disciples, Simon, Andrew, Peter, James, John, all of them. They were called, they were fishermen. They were called to be fishers of men. And Jesus showed up on the Sea of Galilee and he taught the people and then he told the people to push the, told the disciples to push the boat out from the land and let their their nets down, and Simon objected. He said, Lord, you know, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. Yet, at your word, we'll go ahead and do it. And so he let down the nets, and the nets were so full of fish that they had to call other boats over to help them. There was such a heavy load of fish. And when Peter saw what had happened, the miracle that occurred, he was afraid, and he said to Jesus, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus at that point said to Peter and to those that were with Peter, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. The dragnet is sent out. The dragnet is thrown out into the sea. It's how modern commercial fishermen today still fish. In areas where it's still legal to fish this way, they throw a big net over the side of the boat, drag it along for a while, use their motorized wenches, bring it back in, 
They don't know what's going to be in those nets until they dump it out on their deck. And they look and they see what's marketable, what can sell that day, what is, is good and desirable in the fish markets and the rest that is of no value whatsoever. It all gets thrown away. They keep the valuable ones and throw the rest back into the sea. And that's the picture here. At the end of the age, the angels are set forth. God looks at everything that's in the nets to see what's valuable, what has believed, who have trusted the gospel. And those that are wicked and unjust among them are separated out and they're cast into the furnace of fire. There is a judgment. And Jesus is not afraid to say it. He's not apologetic about it. He talks about the judgment of those who refuse to believe the gospel and somehow are able to resist the Holy Spirit compelling them to come to faith in him. So the parable of the dragnet. I want you to read with me from our children's ministry curriculum, which comments on this parable. Quote, this parable has the same meaning as the parable of the wheat and the tares we discussed last week. Just as the sea contains both good and bad fish, it's not until the fishermen pull in the harvest that they can save the good and throw back the bad. In this life, we're like one of the fish. We're to swim around in this world telling others about the good news of God's plan of salvation. Our job is to obey God and tell others about his grace and goodness. But we cannot judge who is part of the kingdom of heaven and who is not. This sorting will be done at the last judgment by the angels who are much more qualified than we. Good theology for our kids, wouldn't you say? Good doctrine. That's what we're teaching our kids in the children's ministry, by the way. The word of God. But the idea there is that we throw the net out. We do our fishing. You never know what you're going to get. And in my Times of fishing, you know, on the Monterey Bay, I've been a lot of interesting things I've caught. Boots, fish. One time bringing up, a, it looked like this nice big-sized cabazon. And then I looked a little closer, and there were these tentacles wrapped around it. And it was a 13-pound octopus. That was pretty cool. In that case, both of them were valuable. The octopus got traded in at a restaurant for a few meals, and <laughs> we had a... Good meal of cabazon at our home as well. So it was all good. But there it is, the parable of the dragnet. Now as Jesus is finished, he says in verse 51 to his disciples, have you understood all these things? Have you understood all of these parables? Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I sort of doubt it. But according to what they understood at the time, they understood what they understood. And so they said, yes, Lord, we understand. But later on, I'm sure as their life continued, they look back on this and they'd say, you know, we really didn't understand. We thought we did. We understood at the time what we understood, but we didn't really understand what we should have understood. And so we really didn't understand. Not really. And uh, sort of looking backwards at it and understanding that. There was a lot more to understand. And I think that's a lot of times the way it is with us as well. But they said, yes, Lord, wanting apparently to look good in the eyes of the Lord. And I suppose he just humored them. He didn't respond to them. He didn't argue with them. You guys don't get it. What are you talking about? Yes, Lord. You guys don't get it. 
instead of arguing with them or criticizing them or chastising them in any way, he just kind of rolled with it. And then he said to them in verse 52, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So, you know, just speaking about the ministers of the word of God within the kingdom. Every scribe that is instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. Every student of scripture that understands Jesus and understands the kingdom of heaven and understands what it's like in this age. Everyone who's looked at the scripture and studied the scripture and has gotten the heart of the message of scripture. Well, that type of person is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And this is one of the beautiful things, of course, about the Scripture, about the Bible, is that there's so many layers in Scripture. Now, while it's true that for every passage of Scripture, please listen, every passage of Scripture, there is one true and intended meaning. For every passage of Scripture, there's only one true and intended meaning. That is, every passage of Scripture that we read, every context has one true and intended meaning. And it's the job of the interpreter of Scripture to get at that, to find out what that is. It's the work of the Bible student to get at that, find out what that is. How do we do that? Well, we study the context. Context of the passage usually reveals the meaning of the Scripture that is in front of us. Context is all important. But aside from context, we also look at things like grammar and historical context and words and phrases and repeated ideas and these sorts of things. And then if we're in the New Testament, we look for examples of it in the Old Testament. If we're in the Old Testament, we look for fulfillment of it in the New Testament. There are many rules of interpretation, ways that we can understand the one primary and intended meaning of every scripture. And there's a word for these rules of Bible interpretation. It's called hermeneutics. If you've never heard that word, that's what hermeneutics is. It's not a man named Herman whose last name was Udix. It's actually the science of the scripture uh, interpretation. That's what it's all about. And, you know, it's the work of the interpreter to do that. Now, as there is one primary and intended meaning for every passage of Scripture, there are many applications that come from those meanings and many layers of those applications and deeper understanding of how truths are true and how deeply true a truth is true. These are the things that the scribe concerning, that is instructed concerning the things of the kingdom of heaven. These are the things that happen. And if you've read the Bible through and if you've read the Bible through many times, You've seen this, or if you've read a single Bible book through many times, you've seen this. The first time through, it was, it was great, the things that the Holy Spirit was showing you. The second time through, boy, you know, I read that just last month, and I'm seeing more there this time than I saw last time. And then when you get 40, 50 times through, uh, insights are coming and understandings are coming that are just deeper and deeper layers. And then the way they apply to us over time, as we begin to grow and as we begin to increase as believers and our needs change and as we mature, 
the interpretation becomes application that is usable, and it just keeps coming, it keeps growing. You know, you never get bored with the Bible because the Holy Spirit is making it fresh and new and real all the time concerning how it fits and works into our lives. And what's true in it is becoming more and more apparent. And that's a wonderful thing. That's what scribes are like that are instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. They, they're learners. They're constantly studying. They're learning. They're wanting to know. They're wanting to find out what these treasures are. And then these scribes are bringing out of their treasures good things, both new and old. Uh, they expose these things to others. They write about them. They talk about them. They'll share with others about them, these accumulated things, these accumulated treasures, things that are new to them, things that are old, that have long since been understood. And we need the new and the old today, too. Now, the old are the established foundational doctrines of Scripture that are apparent to all. And the fact that the Bible is God's inspired word, it was breathed out by him. He breathed on the spirits of human authors, and the influence of the Spirit was so strong on them that what they actually wrote became the infallible Word of God without any error. That's the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. The Scripture is God-breathed. That's what it tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God. If somebody says... Men wrote the Bible, you can say you're only partly correct. The Bible teaches that there is the inspiration and the influence of the Holy Spirit upon the human offers of Scripture so that what they wrote actually became the infallible and inspired and inerrant or without error Word of God. That's the doctrine of inspiration. And that's what's old. That doesn't change. We don't deviate from that. We don't try to change it at all, we don't take away from it, and we don't try to add to it. But the new are the insights and the applications that become increasingly ours as we grow in the Lord. Now, if I have new stuff with no old stuff, then I'm shallow and probably wrong with my theology. But if I have old stuff with no new stuff, then I'm stagnating. You see how that works? If I have new stuff and I discard the old, I'm not worried about what men that wrote 200 years ago have to say. I'm not all that concerned about the, the whole of Scripture and what it teaches. I mean, you know, that's, that's the Bible, you know, I'm, I'm not too worried about that. And I'm just focused on what I'm learning today and what the new uh, spiritual trend is and what it's saying to me. Well, if that's the focus, if it's on new, then that's dangerous ground. Because not only is it shallow, because the old is the foundation for everything new, but it's also potentially very wrong and very incorrect. So we've got to have new and old but yet, if I have the old and I say, well, I'm just going to go with the old and the tried and the true, and I'm not going to be subject to and sensitive to the Holy Spirit speaking into my life and helping me make new application and new understanding of how to 
make this fit into the way he wants me to live, then I'm just going to be stagnating spiritually. And that's no good either. You know, if, if my testimony as a believer today only has to do with things that God did for me 10 years ago or five years ago or one year ago, if that's the only thing I can share about my testimony, then I'm stagnating because there's a fresh work, a current work that God wants to do in my life. These are things that he's doing right now and things that he's helping me to look forward to in the future. These are the things that are also important. Now, if you're stuck in your reading and study and application of the scripture, let me give you a suggestion. First of all, let me give you 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which teaches that the Holy Spirit helps us to know the things that have freely been given to us from God. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit's ministry to make this book alive to our hearts. So let me give you a suggestion. Since it's that ministry of the Holy Spirit to make this book alive to our hearts and to our lives, may I suggest that you trust, consciously trust the Holy Spirit to help you when you read the Bible. Don't approach Bible reading without prayer and without dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to grasp the Bible and to apply the Bible. We need the Holy Spirit so don't read the Bible apart from the Holy Spirit. And then, likewise, don't try to follow the Holy Spirit without the Bible. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and he works with the truth that is in Scripture to lead us and guide us and direct us. So we need the Holy Spirit to help us with the Bible, and we need the Bible to figure out what it means to walk in the Spirit. Both are necessary. The Holy Spirit, that's his ministry, is to... Help us know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And I think God fully expects us to rely upon the Holy Spirit consciously to do these things for us. So if you're stuck, just invoke the person and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in reading Scripture. And if you're still stuck, then ask the Lord if there's a blockage somehow in your spiritual life. Maybe there's a sin that you've committed that you haven't thought about and you haven't confessed. Or maybe there's some relationship that needs to be reconciled that you haven't been willing to reconcile. Maybe you're withholding forgiveness from someone. The Holy Spirit will show you and me exactly what the blockage is. And then we can clear it out and then the Bible can start to speak again. And it can be alive again to us. So the kingdom of heaven, like a householder who brings out of this treasure things new and old. Now we see that the parables have ended. And in verse 53, now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. They stumbled at him. But Jesus said to them, 
A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. In other words, in every other place a prophet receives honor except in his own area where he's from and in his own household. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So this is Jesus returning to where he was raised, to the area of Galilee. This is Jesus returning to Nazareth, to his hometown where he grew up. And as he's teaching them, and they're being taught in such a way as that they're amazed, and as he's doing or word about his mighty works that he'd done are spreading now to Nazareth, they have these questions about him. Where did this man get these things? That's repeated in verse 54 and 56. That was their view of him. Where did this man get these things? They hadn't crossed over to realize that this isn't just a man. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the Savior of the world. But they, they thought that they knew him. They said, listen, you know, he was raised here. His father was a carpenter. His mother still lives here. Four brothers. Two sisters, at least two sisters. His siblings, they're all... We know this man. We know where he came from. We know his upbringing. We're familiar with his family. We're familiar with their place in society. Tradition says it was a very low place in society that that family held. We know these things. So where did he get these teachings? And how does he do these mighty works? And they stumbled at him. They were offended by him. They didn't want to believe in him. Their problem was they were cursed with over-familiarity. That's what they were cursed with. They were cursed with their thoughts that they knew him. They thought they knew him. They thought they knew what he was about. They thought they had adequate information, but they didn't really have adequate information at all. They thought that they knew who he really was. They thought that they knew what he was really about, but they really didn't know anything about what he was really about. Their familiarity led them to confidence about their knowledge of him, and it led them to be stumbled by him. I find the same thing happening today, frequently. Someone hears from an uncle who used to profess as himself as a Christian who no longer professes to be a Christian, that the Bible was just written by man. So that becomes the mantra that they repeat. Yeah, well, you know, the Bible is just written by men, as so it says. And, or some other thing. Jesus is a great teacher, but I don't accept that he is the Son of God. And they heard that from someone else. And I've had many conversations like that with people and have tried to witness to them and they have said that they can't believe in Jesus because, after all, the Bible is written by men or, after all, they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God or that he ever claimed to be God. And I'll ask them the question, and I ask them honestly, not trying to argue with them, have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever read the Gospels? And I can tell you that in almost every case, they have not read the New Testament themselves. They have not read the Gospels. They were cursed with over-familiarity. They thought they knew what Jesus was about. They heard from some professor in some university class, perhaps, what Jesus is about. Maybe they watched some program on television from 
one of these sources, you know, some sort of a documentary. And in watching the documentary, they heard from some scholar back in Chicago that uh, Jesus never claimed to be God. And these are the things they're leaning on, what somebody else has said, but they've never looked into it themselves, never read the Gospels, which are, of course, the documents that talk about his life, his death, and his resurrection. They're the primary sources, and they are strongly attested to by history and by external and internal evidence. The Gospels are the real deal. They really do tell the story. What the story says, if somebody decides not to believe it, that's up to them. But the story is the story. That's exactly what eyewitnesses report as having happened. And that's exactly what they report as to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Can't deny that. But let's at least be honest enough to look into it ourselves. And I think it's one of the great challenges of the church in postmodern 21st century America and in many places in the world today. It's one of the great challenges of the church is to ourselves get it right about Jesus. Who is he? To really know him personally. Who is Jesus? What is he really like? What does the New Testament say about him? What is his character? What was his mission? And then to communicate as God gives us opportunities and as we seek opportunities to communicate with others, to share with them who the real Jesus is. Because I'm convinced that to know him is to love him. And the incidents of those who will believe will go way up once they really hear who he really is. Because he's amazing. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. He's an all-sufficient Savior. Well, unfortunately, what Jesus says is absolutely true. Prophets have honor everywhere else except for in their own country. And it says in verse 58, he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Literally, because of their apiston, which is no faith. They didn't have any faith. They were without faith, and so he did not do any or many mighty works there. Why? Because without faith it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And if somebody is without faith, then... What are they expecting from God? Nothing. What are they looking for God to do? Nothing. Their view of God is so low. Their view of Jesus is so inferior that there's nothing to trust him for. There's nothing to look to him for. You see, if, if I've got a need, and it's a sizable need like salvation or some other kind of a need, if I've got a need then I can either look at the real Jesus to see if he's got what it takes to meet that need, and I always find out that he does. Or I can look at some inferior view of Jesus and conclude, well, I might as well not go to him because, after all, he doesn't have what it takes to meet the need. Who he is is everything, and what we understand about who he is is everything. These people in this town didn't believe, therefore, he did not do many mighty works. Let's not forget that this section that we've looked at this morning starts with this amazing parable 
of the pearl of great price. Jesus the merchant was seeking for beautiful pearls, and he found one pearl of great price, his church. And he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's not forget that that's exactly what Jesus is like. He did that for us. He sold all that he had to buy us, to purchase us. Today I started my 60th year of life, because yesterday was my birthday. That's all right. You don't have to feel sorry for me, and I know I don't look a day over 70, but be that as it may. This year also means that I'm one year away from being in Christ for 40 years. And on my birthday, as I posted on Facebook, I was just overwhelmed with gratitude. Thank you, Lord, because almost 40 years ago, you rescued my life. You rescued me. And had he not done that, I don't think there'd be anybody on Facebook or anywhere else would even care to wish me happy birthday because the person I would have been would have been abhorrent to most. And I don't know if I even survived this long and lived this long had the Lord not rescued my life. I have so much to be grateful for. So much to be grateful for. And even though... We're not rich materially, my wife and I. We are rich beyond words in so many ways. And we're so grateful for it. That's Jesus. That's what he does. That's what he's like for all of us who trust him. Lord, we thank you for this time in the scriptures and this time of looking into your character and your nature a little bit more deeply. We've taken out of our treasure good things, both new and old. And we bless you, Jesus, for who you are. And we long to see people come into the kingdom. We want to see people swim into your nets as believers in Jesus Christ. We want to see people recognize their need for a Savior. We want to see people understand just exactly what you've done when you sold all that you had in order to purchase the field that had the treasure, in order to purchase the one pearl of great price. I want to see people confess their sins and be forgiven and be reconciled to the Father and be redeemed and have their life restored. That's what we want to see, Lord. You've placed us here for that, and that's what we want to see. We agree with it. And if you're here with us this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your own Savior and Lord, but you want to, and your heart is just telling you right now, it's time to receive Jesus. It's time to open up my heart to him and let him in. It's time to believe that he died for me and that he rose from the dead. And it's time to believe that if I receive him, I'll receive eternal life as a gift from God. If that's what you want, then would you just pray this prayer after me, and then we're going to go into a time of communion, and you'll be able to receive communion with those that have already believed that here in this room. Just pray this prayer after me if you want to receive Jesus. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinful person. And I recognize my need for a Savior. And I know you died to pay for my sins and for the sins of the whole world. I also believe that you rose from the dead that you're alive right now, you're alive today. 
And I turn to you, Lord. I ask you to come into my life and save me. Redeem me. Make me a new person. Bring me into eternal life. And I thank you, Lord, that you hear this prayer. And I thank you, Lord, that you're able to fulfill it. Amen.